Black Tech Green Money isn't just about telling the stories of successful black entrepreneurs. It's also about giving actionable and wealth building strategies that help you protect the future of our communities. That's why we're pleased to be supported by State Farm Insurance. State Farm also believes that we must invest in our communities to achieve economic growth by sponsoring programs like the AXO, which rewards high school students for their academic achievements. State Farm believes that being better neighbors creates better communities. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. If you're looking for the most epic place on earth, let's start at the base of a massive waterfall. Then trek through the thick jungle. Then climb to the peak of a snowy mountaintop. Then once you get there, keep going. Because with intelligent 4x4 and 7 drive modes and a Nissan Pathfinder, the search is the real adventure. Available feature. Intelligent 4x4 cannot prevent collisions or provide enhanced traction in all conditions. Always monitor traffic and weather conditions. Hot Happy Mess. Celebrate your magic in the middle of life's messes. Hi, happy mess. I'm Zuri Hall, and this is Hot, Hot happy, happy Mess. Oh, shoot. <laughs> What's up? Welcome to another episode of Hot Happy Mess. I am your host, Zuri Hall, and I hope you are well. Sorry, I completely just <laughs> blanked out for a second. It's been a long day. Um, a quick life update. What is going on? My dad was in town. I'm here in Los Angeles. My dad came out and visited me for, gosh, like 10 plus days, which was awesome. He's retired now, so he can just hop on the plane and go. And he's pretty chill, uh, pretty low maintenance dude. So that's nice. We just kind of kick back and hang out. Lola has him wrapped around her little gingerford paw but it's been really sweet just covered the espies attended that event which was really fun really cool to shake it up it's not your usual hollywood crowd right you get a little bit of the celebs the the hollywood celebs and then the sports stars and the worlds all collide at once so that was a really fun night i was in high heels until like two in the morning maybe three and i started at gosh like one o'clock in the afternoon so my back hates me My feet do too, but that's a conversation for another day. I'm getting older. Anyways, things are well. I hope things are well your way. And if you didn't know, this month is BIPOC Mental Health Awareness Month. And today's episode means so much to me because we are having a really important conversation on mental health within the black community, specifically as it relates to black women. This topic has been on my mind for a, a while, quite a while, but especially in, in the last year or two, you know, as I've seen how anxiety and depression has impacted those in my industry, in my community, my family, my friend group, myself. Um, it's why I I take mental health and the activism around mental health and mental wellness very seriously. And I've tried to be as transparent as I can and as I'm ready to in any given moment about my own mental health journey because I've had ebbs and flows, you know, and and really it was only in the last couple of years. I think the pandemic really kicked off uh, some feelings or new experiences for a lot of us that maybe we hadn't gone through before. But, you know, the last couple of years especially, I've had to deal with the ebb and flow of of feelings of mental wellness. And some days you're a little bit down and, and sometimes there's a reason and then sometimes there's not. 
And I think it's really important that we acknowledge and remove the stigma around the moments when there's not, when it feels like there's not a reason. Because depression and anxiety and a lot of these mental health concerns or challenges that we all deal with to varying degrees, they don't discriminate, you know, and I've learned that especially in recent years. And But it's something that I've seen in my personal life and from people who I care about in their own personal struggles. It's something that I've been heartbroken to have to report on professionally. We're seeing now more than ever sports stars, celebrities, people come out and just talk about their mental health and moments when they feel that it's been lacking or less than ideal or optimal. And there is no shame. There is no shame in in those struggles. And there's no shame in asking for help. And so I just really want to take a true moment from me to you and say that when I say, I hope you are well, I genuinely, truly hope you are well. And if you are not, please know, please understand, please believe me when I say It can get better. It does get better. It sometimes takes a lot of work and a support network that sometimes you may not feel like you have and some time and heavy lifting. Those may all be things that you have to go through to get to the other side, but I promise you it's worth it. And sometimes the helpers, the people who will see you when you feel unseen, hear you when you feel unheard, support you when you feel unsupported, are the people you least expect. I love that saying about looking for the helpers. They're everywhere. I'm paraphrasing because I always butcher quotes. But it's so true. Sometimes people who have pulled me out of my darkest moments or who have wiped a tear from my eye because I'm crying in public because it's one of those days or, you know, someone who's left me a note of encouragement or a smiley face on a napkin because they saw me crying at a dinner table out in public because it was one of those days. I have moments, y'all. We all have moments. Sometimes it's those people. Sometimes it's the kindness of strangers. But what I really hope and pray is that if you are struggling that you will reach out to someone, that you will talk to someone, even if it's as simple as, I need help, I'm scared, I don't know what to do, I don't know what to say. Will you sit with me? Will you pray with me? Will you talk with me? Will you help me find the support network, the professional help that I need? A lot of times, you know, we can't heal what we don't reveal. And people don't know that we're suffering in silence. Sometimes it's the person right next to you. It has certainly been me often. And people closest to me would never suspect. I'm sure you can relate. I'm sure you've had similar experiences. So I just hope that you find it in you to have the courage to show up for yourself and just ask for that help. Hopefully today's conversation will give you a little bit of support, a little bit of insight, some resources and direction. If you're looking for help, if you're looking to understand some of your feelings, therapy is obviously something that I've always been a very big advocate 
for. And I highly encourage that to anyone who's even considering it or on the fence. And today I'm particularly grateful for Dr. Rita joining me for a really beautiful, um, really deep, really real conversation on Hot Happy Mess. We are exploring high-functioning depression, how anxiety can take hold of our daily lives, suicide ideation, the myth of the happy, strong friend, and its connection with silent suffering, and so, so, so much more. If there is not an episode you listen to except for one this year, I'm not going to be that dramatic this month, all right? I don't want you listening to just one episode for the year. (laughs) But this month, I I really hope you listen to this one. I do want to share a content warning as later in our conversation, we will be discussing suicide. If you find the topic triggering, you can check the episode description and the show notes for the specific time codes when we'll have that conversation so that you can bypass that part, skip by that, okay? All right, y'all, let's go ahead and get this conversation started. It is a beautiful one. You do not want to miss it. Share it to a friend right now. Talk about it with them after you listen. Here's Dr. Rita. Dr. Rita Walker is an award-winning professor of psychology, fellow in the American Psychological Association, and author of The Unapologetic Guide to Black Mental Health. She is also an expert scholar who has published more than 60 scientific papers on African-American mental health, suicide risk, and emotional resilience. You may have seen her in Vogue. Ebony, Good Morning America Today, The Breakfast Club, all the places that anybody who's doing anything wants to be. (laughs) And I'm so grateful to have her with us today sharing her expertise. Dr. Rita, welcome. Thank you so much, Zuri. It really is a pleasure to be here with you. I'm so glad to have you. Uh, Before we dive in, you know, our our show is all about best life minus the burnout. A big part of avoiding burnout is taking the breaks and the rest we need. I hear you had a sabbatical that that you took a few months ago? I did. So university professors, after having been in whatever appointment for at least seven years, uh, are eligible to take time off. So it can be a semester or actually a year. I opted to take one semester to take a step back. I actually did work on some projects. So I worked, I went hard. Some things that I took off the plate. <laughs> Wait, Dr. Rita, you're supposed to sabbatical on the sabbatical. No, I <laughs> you that, was not, that was so not the intention. Uh, but you understand, you know, there are times when you're supposed to like dial back and it just doesn't work out that way. So I still now need a sabbatical from my sabbatical. <laughs> okay, you sound like me. I've never felt more seen. Uh, well, I hope you get the sabbatical from your sabbatical, um, but I'm sure what's going to come out of that work will be just as impressive as everything else you've accomplished so far. Um, this episode, we are really just covering, um, you know, the spectrum from mental health to to hopefully you providing some insights on this rising trend of, of Black women committing suicide, battling depression, um, you know, just breaking down and, and unmasking what exactly that is, that depression. Um, the myth of the happy, the strong friend, um, and that connection to silent suffering, which is what a lot of us are realizing the people we love are doing, suffering in silence. Sometimes we we hear these stories and we it resonates, you know, because sometimes we are the one who is suffering in silence. July is BIPOC Mental Health Awareness Month um, when this this episode is scheduled to air. So it couldn't have come um, at a more perfect time. First of all, how are you doing? How are things in your world right now? Um, and then, yeah, just tell me a little bit about your background, how you came into this work. Well, you know, I, I came into this work as someone who was really curious about our community. So curious about 
the Black, the African-American community, and specifically how we didn't seem to show up in my undergraduate psychology textbooks. You know, I just kind of felt like the way we went about life wasn't really represented. And I thought, okay, well, if I just go go to graduate school, I'll just get one of those PhDs. And that's where the knowledge resides, right? That's what I thought. Uh, and so that, you know, really started my journey to trying to create knowledge that didn't exist in a way that that we needed it, if that makes sense. It absolutely is so important. Uh, I'm curious to know around what age was it that you decided this was a world that you really wanted to commit yourself to? Was this a calling you felt early on? Was was there, you know, a situational moment that made you realize, okay, I think I know where my life is headed? It's an interesting question because uh, like a lot of folks, my mother had told me early in life what I was going to do. And what she said was that I could be a lawyer or I could be a doctor. And I think so many of us have those conversations, right? Like these are respectable careers that you can have that people know what they are. Great. And I adopted that. I actually thought that I was going to be a lawyer for a really long time because I like to talk. So great. I'll be a lawyer. Fast forward to and this was probably, you know, elementary school, middle school. Fast forward to undergraduate um, and having the opportunity to actually shadow an attorney. And I was about, you know, probably 19 years old at the time. And I thought, hmm, this this just doesn't feel right. Like just the whole feel of it just didn't seem like something that I aspired to do. Uh, So I went back to the drawing board, thought about what are the classes that I intrinsically enjoyed? They were psychology courses. Uh, Back then, folks were like, you can't do anything with a bachelor's degree in psychology. So I said, "Okay, well. I'm interested in in black people. So I guess I'll just go get the PhD. So then my mom could have the doctor (laughs) that she had given me the option to have. It all worked out. Yeah. Yeah. And and here you are now. You've got your book, The Unapologetic Guide to Black Mental Health. Uh, I'm curious to know, one, why is it unapologetic? What is so unapologetic about this book for those who may be picking it up? And also, what does it mean to be culturally humble? Yeah. So so two things about the book being unapologetic and the community probably resonates with the idea that uh, oftentimes we can't seem to have anything um, and we especially can't seem to have have nice things that our stories, our narratives, uh, anything that was intended for the black community, you know, just gets hijacked. Um, they become all lives matter, you know, kind of thing. And so I needed us to have a text, a reference for us because the crisis was happening in our community. And I needed to be able to communicate in a way that that we understood that there was something that needed to happen. That's one part. The other part is that we really do have some um, traditions in our community, things that we say to each other, like uh, just go pray about it. Uh, Black people don't go to therapy. You know, that we got to cut out. Like we really have to remove those conversations so that we can get meaningful help to people who need it. So it's unapologetic because it really is for us without apology. And two, because we have to be honest about some of the things that we do that perpetuate some of the problems. Yeah, beautifully said. Um, And I couldn't agree more. When you say culturally humble, what is that in reference to? What exactly does that mean? Yeah, well, that's for folks who are uh, aspiring to provide services in our communities who aren't necessarily a part of those communities. And so we have individuals who may be, you know, professionally trained, who are in fact licensed, but they're not African-American, you know, don't resonate with the African-American experience in any way. They may have a a few black friends, but they come into these conversations thinking, oh, you know, well, 
all people are just the same or my client didn't come in because of racism. And they need to be able to meet the client where they are uh, to be able to talk about, you know, experiences of, of racism or microaggression, whatever they may be, and take a humble approach to learning more and learning not just from the client, you know, who's someone who is, you know, presumably in pain, but taking it upon themselves to say, OK, rather than, you know, tapping into any biases you know, to really, truly learn and and follow the, um, you know, follow the journey of learning more about the community to help to make sense of every client and every patient's psychological distress. Okay. So what I think is interesting to note here, you know, the unapologetic guide is a guide for everybody to Black mental health. Is this something that a health provider could also pick up, whether or not they feel that they're a part of the community, if they want to better understand our community? Oh, yeah, um, absolutely. I think that uh, Dr. Naeem Akbar, who wrote the foreword, probably said it best that even though it wasn't necessarily written for people who don't identify as African-American or who don't identify as black, that by reading the book, they will, in fact, learn a lot. So the book is targeted, you know, for the black community, because I know that we have the resources, you know, once we have more information and insight that we can do better and other folks can kind of, you know, peek in and see like, oh, OK, those are some real issues, you know, because I cite research. I talk about my research and I talk about the impact of systemic oppression on black people that I think we internalize in a lot of ways. It's just kind of like, well, that's just kind of life. It just is what it is. And for a lot of folks, that really is like, wow, like you you deal with that, you know, like trying to figure out neighborhoods to live in and where to send children to school in a way that you have to avoid oppression. like. Like that's something that, you know, I talk about because it's it's normative for us. Uh, and we wonder why we're so exhausted all the time. But Tired. I'll pause there. Tired. Oh, just I, I wanted to go on a whole different path with that. Uh, and we will get to um, to that idea of exhaustion and what it means to just feel like the walls are, are closing in on you and how that may manifest in one's life and one's health um, to sort of open up that conversation around this mental health crisis that we seem to be in. Um, one, one area in which I think it really exacerbates the problem is us playing against these stereotypes, right? These, these labels that have been put on us, me going through the world, trying not to come across as an angry black woman, being quote unquote ghetto, whatever that means, acting white, quote unquote, whatever that means, lessening our true selves so that we're more palatable to communities, people, groups that may not understand us. Code switching is something that I've spoken a lot about that I feel very passionately about because I was really a prisoner of it for most of my childhood and my high school life because I was living in between two worlds. You know, I went to a very small, very wealthy, very white, um, private, independent school. Amazing education. I love it. I wouldn't take it back. But I was none of those things that I just listed off. I was from a working, you know, or middle class family in the inner city. All my friends were black. My family was black. And I bust out and I felt very torn for a very long time. And I didn't feel like I fit in in any one space. Um, and that sticks with you into adulthood. You start to carry certain insecurities around that. Um, and that's just one one area. But again, when when we think about all of these different pressures that we have when we step outside of our home, um, what is your perspective on that, on how the pressure to code switch, the pressure to not come off how society says we come off might affect our mental health? Well, it really is interesting because, 
you know, we, we, we have learned to adapt, right? So, so, you know, surviving is about adapting to the circumstances. And so that's what you were able to do. And what we don't realize is that the adaptation, not just for you in your lifetime, but but over generations, you know, so our grandparents adapted. And so they taught our parents to adapt and then we adapted. And so we just kind of pass on to some degree the exhaustion. You know, you you come out the gate just just tired, you know, like I have nothing left. And because that gets to be, again, so normalized that we think if I'm not having a nervous breakdown, then I'm okay. And that's the part that I think that troubles me because we're doing the equivalent of, you know, dragging a, a broken ankle or, you know, broken foot along. But it's like, okay, as long as I can get to the next step, then I'm okay, not realizing that we're doing further damage or at least further delaying our recovery. Unless we get to a place where we can say, this thing that I'm doing right now, it has to stop. And, and to be sure, some of us have achieved tremendous success despite running on that broken angle. And so because of the success or, or the perception of success, we just keep it moving. And then when it's time to say, OK, I can't do this anymore. And the body is saying, I can't do this anymore. And sometimes it's something as bad as a, a heart attack. We know that black women have disproportionately high rates of heart attack and stroke. And it takes something that bad to shut down the physical body. And, you know, the physician is saying something like, are you experiencing a lot of stress? <laughs> We're like, well, well, what am I not? I thought it was part of who I am to, right. to do stress. Like, what are you talking about? It's like, did you wake up right. this morning? Well, I woke up, didn't I? <laughs> you know, right. and of course I have stress. And as long as I can keep moving, it's okay. But we need to be able to say, and that's one reason why, you know, I try to introduce this idea of psychological fortitude, because when we talk about mental health, well, we say, well, I'm not crazy. You know, I'm not I'm not weak. You know, I'm not any of the the stereotypes that we tell ourselves about mental health. You know, you know, all the ones, you know, because of that, then we avoid having actually health and well-being and psychological fortitude to be able to tap into our creativity. Um, to, to the inspiration to do the things that we were all put here to to do. Dr. Rita, you are preaching, 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 preaching. You know a spot, but not just a spot, the spot. Actually, with the 2023 Nissan Frontier, you know a bunch of them. But the key to these great spots, being able to reach them in the first place. Your spot is out there. Find your frontier in the 2023 Nissan Frontier with standard 310 horsepower, advanced tech, and 281 pound-feet of torque. State Farm Insurance gets it. Representation alone doesn't equate to authenticity. State Farm understands and wants to help protect our communities by investing in our future, building off the hard work our parents have done before us. We all are looking to create generational wealth so that our families and generations behind us have a better starting point than we did. That begins with financial literacy. State Farm helps fund programs like Project Ready, a National Urban League program committed to the educational achievement of Black and Brown youth. To date, 
Participants have been awarded over $11 million in scholarships offers as a direct result of contributions from State Farm. At Eating While Broke, we hear inspiring rags to riches stories on each episode from our guests. But with State Farm, you can begin to write your own success story. State Farm believes that being better neighbors creates better communities and have a long lasting impact. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. I love what you mentioned about the body and how these things start to manifest in our physical health. How, you know, if we were running on a broken foot, we would probably want to, you know, stop, wrap it up, maybe go to the ER. But when it's when it's our mental wellness or mental health, we can sense that we're not okay. But to your to quote you directly, if we're not having a nervous breakdown, it's fine. We can keep going, you know. I I didn't grow up with therapy like so many of us. And we'll talk about that stigma in the black community. I'm in it now. I love it. I get excited. Like me showing up for my therapy appointments is like a first date every time. I'm like, I can't, what are we going to talk about? Like, I just can't wait to tell her everything. Um, it has been a, a game changer for me. But one um, one chapter of my life that was more recent than not, when I realized sort of just how important the the pain body can be to um, firing off warning shots for you is I had my first panic attack probably two years ago. I'd never had one. And I didn't understand when my friends, my close friends or family members would talk about anxiety, extreme anxiety or panic attacks. I tried to empathize and sympathize where I could, but you only know what you know until you know something differently. And and in a twisted way, I'm really grateful for that chapter because, oh my God, my heart just breaks so much more. I just have so much more empathy for people going through it, particularly uh, consistently because, you know, the physicality of that was so scary and so overwhelming. And it was a one-off for me. And I had a few more in, in the year that followed. But there are people who are ignoring these, these warning signs in their bodies daily, weekly, monthly, or they're self-medicating to mute or numb that. Um, what, what signs would you encourage someone to consider if you feel this way, if if this is something that you're constantly ruminating about, you may want to consider talking to someone, getting checked out, just seeing what's going on. Well, you know, it's I'm, I'm glad that you shared that because, you know, first and foremost, we do want to rule out, you know, physical health problems. Like some people do have, you know, blocked arteries, like they have conditions that have been passed on, uh, you know, as you know, and we do want to make sure that we're having annual, you know, regular physical checkups. And that's what mental health professionals will always tell a new patient, like, when was your last physical? Did you rule out physical health concerns? And so when people are seeing their doctor regularly, then they can say, like, I'm in good health. I don't have any reason to believe that I'm at risk for a stroke or things of that nature. Because some folks really are walking around with really high blood pressure and have no idea. And that needs to be managed. So once an individual knows that they are physically healthy and they can rule out those kinds of concerns, Then they want to start to notice when they just feel like that tightness in their chest. But, you know, the tightness isn't because of physical health, but it could be because of anxiety. And it might just feel like pressure. It might just feel like somebody has their foot on your chest or or neck. And it's like difficulties, like difficulties breathing. And then there are other folks who, you know, it seems more subtle, like they might snap more than usual. Um, Or they might say something that's out of proportion to the situation, because, yes, 
there are situations that are just really foul, like really stressful, and we get angry and that's normal. But when something happens and you can cognitively say, okay, I, I don't think that was that big of a deal the way that I reacted to it, then it is time to stop and reassess what all is going on for me. And when I talk about reassess, I introduce this, you know, the rating system in the book that is psychological fortitude that is a zero to 10. Um, zero, you have no capacity to take care of your daily responsibilities. So people, you know, who are working outside the home or in the home, you know, individuals who are in school, maybe and working, maybe taking care of children, taking care of their physical health. People do have diabetes and you have to exercise to do things to take care of your your physical health. Um, and then, of course, we have our, you know, our life purpose. But there are some folks who will say, I have no idea, you know, what my purpose is. And so we need to be able to, to know what that is, because that hope gives us the drive, you know, to keep to keep moving towards pursuing something. And so if we're able to manage all those things and tap into our not to cut you off, but just because that stood out to me, do you believe that everyone has a life purpose, which I think is so important when people feel purposeless and like there's no point in waiting to figure something out that they don't think is going to come? Oh, absolutely. I, I absolutely believe that every single person has a purpose for which they were put here. And, you know, that purpose doesn't have to be, you know, being Zuri Hall, you know, and doing all the wonderful things, um, you know, that, that you've accomplished. Like everyone has their own thing. You know, maybe it is I'm the best cook in my home. And so when we bring families together, you know, I'm the person who's cooking and bringing joy. Like we all have some talent, but oftentimes those talents get buried Maybe because our family said, well, you were supposed to be a doctor, you know, and so that person decided to go get an MD when their purpose was in, you know, spending time with the youth. You know, like we all have these distractions from our life purpose. And so then we're always trying to fight. Like, I know there's more to life than this. Well, maybe it's your purpose. And so if we're at a if we're at a 10, you know, we're cooking with grease. You know, you're taking care of your work. Hopefully your work is taking you to your life purpose. You know, we're able to take care of our physical health, uh, you know, over the course of the pandemic. It's understandable that most of us didn't get to a 10. Like that is completely understandable. But we want to at least be at a seven or so. If there are folks who are operating in that five and below for weeks or months or years, Zuri, and we know that there are people who are at five for years, it is time to talk to a professional. Talking to family is great. You know, we, are, we know our families love us, uh, but we can't they can't necessarily love on us the way that a licensed professional can. I love that. We're not normalizing fives, y'all. If it's feeling like a five, we need to we need to up the ante. Um, it was beautiful what you said. And I completely agree. I do believe that everyone has a, a purpose in life. And if we can tap into that, that's where we find our joy and, and that sense of contentment, peace when we cultivate it. But it can be really hard to do, especially, you know, when we have family or friends, coworkers, sometimes strangers on the Internet these days. That sometimes is the biggest thing telling us who we are, who we can't be, what we should think, why we shouldn't think this way. Um, when it comes to the Black community specifically and the stigma around talking about wellness or lack thereof, talking about therapy or lack thereof, where do you think that has come from? Why? Why has that been our burden to bear? And are you sensing a generational shift now? Because I'm starting to feel it, I think. I do. Um, okay. So the first part, I wish I knew where it came from, you know, so we could just go uproot the whole thing. It just seems like it's always been, it's always been there. 
the interesting thing is that it's wonderful to have this sense of resilience in the community. I guess it's what got us out of chattel slavery. It's got us through the civil rights movement. Like we needed that sort of like, I can do this no matter what. Like that's part of, you know, psychological well-being is to be able to say, I can experience a stressful situation and I can navigate and come through that. And I, I really believe that that came from our, our African culture and our, our heritage um, as people of African ancestry. What happened, though, over time is that we lost track of our cultural resilience, uh, started to do you know some of what you were talking about, like trying to fit in to a culture community that was rejecting and unaffirming in so many ways. And it's like, well, you left one culture behind. This culture is saying, uh, no, ma'am, you're not one of us uh, or you at least not enough of one of us. And so we're kind of, you know, in the gap. And so increasingly, I think because we're getting to a place of crisis, this current generation is like, oh, no, <laughs> check, please. <laughs> we got to have some different <laughs> kinds of conversations. This is unacceptable. I'm so glad that those conversations are happening now. I do sense it, especially, you know, I'm 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 a millennial. Um, when I see Gen Z and the conversations that they're having, especially when it comes to public discourse, I'm just so it's equal parts. I'm inspired and my heart is breaking because I feel like they're struggling at least more publicly with mental health in, in really just devastating ways. And yet on the opposite end of that, that pendulum, um, that swing are people saying enough is enough. I don't want to live the life of my parents. And no, I'm not. Um, I don't buy into your, you know, work by all means necessary, achieve all the goals, strive for this and that. I just want to chill. I just want to live my life. And to have that freedom and that clarity at, you know, 16, 17, 18 sometimes, because they see what's happening to their peers who are striving for something else. I really admire that. That is not where I was. And I don't feel that that's where, you know, the people in my generation that I was close to at least were at that age. Um when it comes to our community and our most common diagnoses, what, what do those tend to be? Uh, you know, obviously we have bipolar, there's anxiety, depression, um, some folks who go undiagnosed. What sort of issues do you seem to recognize the most in the black community? Yeah, there are two psychological or diagnosable disorders, like two, we'll call them two buckets. And so one bucket is, in fact, depression. And the other bucket, which actually uh, we see more of than depression, is anxiety. You know, we talk about a depression a lot in the community, or at least historically we did. Increasingly, we are talking about anxiety. So that's, you know, a lot of worrying, uh, which I know got passed on from a previous generation. Just folks would say, you just find something to worry about. Go, okay. <laughs> um, and so it's it's the worry, it's the the hypervigilance and the, the planning and the agitation that goes with worry. Um, it is, you know, worry affects concentration, it affects sleep. And so similarly does depression. The interesting thing about anxiety and depression that a lot of people don't know is that we they, they co-occur. Um, and so people who have depression um, are more likely to be anxious and people who are anxious are more likely to have depression. So oftentimes we see just kind of a mix of maybe low mood and agitation that go with depression. But then we also see, you know, a lot of worry thoughts. We see a sense of hopelessness, like this anxiety that I have is never going to go away. And then that starts to feel like depression. Uh, you know, so the two coexist a lot. Um, and I think that the, the one probably dimension of those two that we don't acknowledge enough is in fact this sort of like um, this agitation 
you know, being short with people. And so individual would just say like, you know, why are you angry all the time? Well, you know, mentally, emotionally, they're caring a lot. And so rather than saying or referring to them as an angry black woman, you know, why not extend some grace? And that's what we need to be doing more of, you know, in our communities is extending grace to folks. And if they can't hear you, if they're not listening to the podcast, let them know, hey, you know, I can tell, you know, this situation right here is really stressful for you. I'm going to come back, but, you know, I'm going to check on you later. You know, I'm not going to dig in or call you names or call you out your name, um, but I'm going to, you know, respect where you are and try to be supportive. That support from the community is so important. You know, identity um, and, and how we fit in as individuals within our greater communities is so important. That sense of belonging, that sense of fellowship, that sense of, you know, having a village when it takes one. Um, I'd love if you could just uh, discuss the role of identity and, and what that plays uh, into or how that plays into our mental health, depression, possible anxiety. You know, when we think about race, sex, gender, sexual orientation, um, you've said you can access Wakandan energy by being who you are. How do we figure out who we are and how important is it to have a safe space to be whoever that person is? Yeah, I mean, identity that just has so many, so many layers to it. And actually one place I will start is by acknowledging that a lot of what it means to, to be black has negative stereotypes associated with it. Like if we could remove the negative conversations that people have about, you know, black people being lazy and all these other kinds of narratives when, you know, well, for hundreds of years, these folks were working without pay, you know, like, can we reshape the narrative about what it means to be a black person in this society? Because when black people internalize this, and this is what I'll say, you know, to parents and teachers, we have to be careful about how the younger people are internalizing what they think it means to be black, you know, and all this. Well, if you speak like you got some sense and you're talking white, you know, like that's that's unacceptable. And it's leaving our children more vulnerable, whereas the research has been consistent in saying that if a black person, child, woman, whomever, has a positive sense of what it means to be black. So we're resilient. We're creative. We make a way out of no way. You know, like when we have that, it gets us a lot farther in work and in school and in anything that we thrive at or we strive at. It gets us so much further. So we have to be aware, aware of removing the negative connotation and also embracing the positive that, that has been lost. Uh, you know, I'll never forget, you know, when I was teaching in South Carolina and I had a student to say, well, Dr. Walker, why are we why are we talking so much about Africa? You don't see me sitting around beating a drum. Mm, wow. And I was so heartbroken for him because I know that a lot of what we understand about being African people is is negative. It's bad. It's backwards. Now we see a division in the U.S. between people, you know, of African descent who are first generation and those whose families have been here for generations. And we've got these disconnects. We're all African, <laughs> um, but we need to tap into what that truly, truly means. Because when you talk about the community and the community supporting one another, some of us don't know who the community is. And so we can't support one another because we don't know that we're all a part of this same uh, collective of individuals that has to come together, especially in a society that isn't going to support us in the way that we need to be supported. Mm. You said, and this is a direct quote um, to, to piggyback on what you've just shared. 
If a black child does not have a positive black identity to navigate his world, he may encounter considerable emotional turmoil. Where does he fit in? The identity struggle can be difficult to navigate. Your black ancestors surrendered their cultural identity long ago to survive. They would have gladly maintained their uncolonized heritage. You have been willingly struggling to get your son to fit in to the colonizer system. Meanwhile, he is marginalized, feels justifiably unsafe, and never believes he quite belongs. This lack of belonging can have emotional consequences. I get chills reading that. I almost tear up reading that because in in certain ways that very much puts words I probably didn't even have, probably still don't have until now. I can just go say, read what Dr. Rita wrote um, about some of my childhood experiences in those white spaces where I didn't know how to navigate and I didn't necessarily have a map of belonging uh, to pull out of my back pocket. And I didn't have my family, my friends or my loved ones there in those moments to remind me of who I was and why that was a good thing and where I came from. And it's hard when you're a kid who's just trying to get on to get on anyway to have this added layer. Um, I'd love if you could just um, maybe give some some advice to the parents specifically who might be listening as, you know, they send their children out into these worlds that aren't necessarily built for them and don't particularly want them there potentially. Yeah, I have to take a, a deep breath on on that one as a mom um, who is like everyone else, you know, who has a child in school trying to find the balance between the good school. And I put that in air quotes, um, and a school where they do in fact fit in and are maybe more embraced. And it is insane to have to make these decisions. And this is just a plug for anyone who's been thinking about, you know, creating schools. Like we need more schools that can educate our children about not just math and science and algebra, but also affirm who they are rather than removing us from the history books or, or making those history books look a little suspect. I'm sorry, I'm in Texas. History books, it's a thing. <laughs> oh, you should have laughed with that. That would have that would have clarified so much <laughs> of what you may be going through. I am sorry. Oh my goodness. You you, oh, sorry. Oh, sorry. We, could, we could talk about this weekly. Um adventures in anyway, I digress. Um one of the things that, that I know as a psychologist who happens to be a mom is that, you know, we have to have conversations with our children about what happened in school and how they're making sense of what happened in school so that they are not internalizing, well, this happened because I'm black and there's something wrong with me. Absolutely not. They need to know that if someone mistreated them and they think it has anything to do with being black or being brown, being a person of color, that it's about the other person. It's about the teacher. It's about those students. It's about all those other individuals. I had a similar uh, experience that you did, except that my school was, at least my first grade classroom, which I remember was, was the school was integrated, but I was in the gifted class uh, and the teacher would never call on me. So I was the only black child in the class. Uh, the teacher would never call on me. Uh, and after a few weeks, I had no idea why. After a few weeks, I got moved out of that classroom. Um, and I got moved into a classroom where, incidentally, it was almost 99 percent black or African-American. And I was helping the other students because I didn't have anything else to do. I already knew what they were were learning. And it wasn't until years later that I realized what likely happened to me. Um, fortunately, I was also in, I think, similar to what you described, black family, you know, black community, black neighborhood and, and all those things. 
And what my parents said to me was, you will have to work twice as hard to get half as far. Somehow, you know, we make it make sense. But even if we think that is true for our younger children today, we need to be absolutely sure that we're going another step and saying, these are people who look like you, who are inventors. These are people who look like you, who have created list off, you know, who have written books, who write poetry. You know, we see, you know, folks in sports and entertainment, but we don't always necessarily, we don't always see the folks who are, who are brilliant until we're in a movie, right? So we, we wait until there's a movie and then we say, oh, wow, I didn't know we did that. We have to be much more intentional about showing our children who they are and showing them in a different light. Now, sometimes we might have to say, like, you can't go out there calling folks racist um, because then that'll get them in another heap of trouble. Ask me how I know. You're racist. My mama said you're racist. (laughs) So we can't do that. We need to tell the kids to stand down. I mean, what if, what if, you know, sometimes they find themselves in situations where that is quite literally what is happening. Come home and tell your parents. Mm. And your parents will will fight the battle and, and parents have to fight the battle. You know, we can't say, well, I went through that. It was good enough for me. Like, no, no. Anyone who feels inclined to say that to a child, just just don't just don't, you know, ask them about what happened. Ask them about who all was there. Make sure that you can understand that child's experience in the way that they experienced it so that they know that you care so that they know that you hear them because when they go through things, if they feel like no one's listening, then they won't be inclined, you know, to share. And then, yeah, parents have to go hard in the paint, basically, you know, for our children. Like we, we are the first line of defense. And I know that we absolutely love our children and mean well. We have to make sure that we're communicating by being present. And one of the reasons that I wrote the book is because a lot of us can't be present because we're so anxious and we're so depressed. On our jobs, we're fighting similar battles, but we're the first line of defense for our children. So, you know, we have our battle over here. Reach out to whoever you need to reach out to so that we can be present for the youth. Because when I see the crisis, you know, in our children, um, it, it, it gives me it gives me pause. It really does. All right. So there we were cruising through the new open air zoo when I realized that the park was closing in like 15 minutes. Luckily, we were in my Nissan Rogue. With its powerful VC turbo engine, well, we had time to see all the animals. Whoa! (laughs) And outrun a few! Drive the Nissan Rogue. State Farm Insurance gets it. Representation alone doesn't equate to authenticity. State Farm understands and wants to help protect our communities by investing in our future, building off the hard work our parents have done before us. We all are looking to create generational wealth so that our families and generations behind us have a better starting point than we did. That begins with financial literacy. State Farm helps fund programs like Project Ready, a National Urban League program committed to the educational achievement of Black and Brown youth. To date, participants have been awarded over $11 million in scholarships offers as a direct result of contributions from State Farm. At Eating Wallbrook, we hear inspiring rags-to-riches stories on each episode from our guests, but with State Farm, you can begin to write your own success story. State Farm believes that being better neighbors creates better communities and have a long-lasting impact. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.
I'd love to dig into the topic of unmasking depression just a little bit more. Uh, paraphrasing, you've said we normalize mental health issues and have been able to hide from them. But when the pandemic happened, some of us were forced to face it. Um, you, you touched a little bit on what depression was earlier. Um, I really appreciated the breaking down of how anxiety can eventually lead to depression, especially when we're suppressing that anxiety long enough that we start to feel it's inescapable, that there's no way out from it. And that sort of lays the groundwork for depression. Um, how does it tend to present depression in its many forms? And also, this is something that I'm really fascinated by the idea of because I see it around me. I've felt it at certain points. And we're reporting stories in my space now on people who have suffered from it. And that is high functioning depression, um, which seems to present a little bit differently than, than we might expect. So could you talk a little bit about, about that? We, we have this interesting idea that we think we know what depression looks like except that it doesn't always present a certain way. You know, depression is oftentimes an internal experience. You know, it is the feelings of worthlessness, which is not unsurprising in the society in which we live. Like if you don't adhere to a certain standard, then you're not good enough. And so folks are, you know, trying to fight because we are smart, you know, we are intelligent, you know, we do have the capacity. And especially if you learn from parents, like, you know, you just put on your eyelashes and keep it moving, you know, that we know how to do that, but it doesn't mean that we aren't in fact suffering on the inside. And so it looks like sleep problems, you know, falling difficulties, falling asleep and running around with five hours or less of sleep per night. Like that's not, that's not good for the body. Um, it looks like sometimes, sometimes just not having the energy to get out of bed. But, you know, those Dunkin Donuts commercials from back in the day, you know, you got to make the you got to make the donuts. And it feels like you don't have the option to just be in bed because there's so many people who are relying on you. And that's a good thing, you know, in some ways, because, you know, that's our purpose, or at least that's our short term purpose. My short term purpose is to be here for everyone else. Unfortunately, it's a distraction from the greater good or the bigger picture that we're supposed to be pursuing. Um, for other people, it is difficulties with overeating or undereating. So depression is like, it's a constellation of things. Um, if it is biologically determined, so folks have uh, dysregulation in their hormonal system, then they can benefit from having antidepressant medication. But for a lot of people, the depression is more, you know, situational and circumstances. So, uh, you know, they're in a job for years in which they are trapped and miserable and, you know, they're struggling with their sleep and their concentration and their mind is just like, I can't take this anymore, but you got to keep it moving. Um, because there's something about looking depressed. And I put that in air quotes. There's something about looking weak. There's something about looking like you got issues. Uh, we know if somebody's got issues, then we ignore them, marginalize them. And nobody wants that. You know, we, we want to still be in the mix of things because at least it gives us an opportunity to feel alive. You know, we get invited to happy hour, but then we go home and then that depression, you know, those feelings kind of sink in or sneak in before you know it. And that's why we have to be proactive you know, if you start to see, like I said, those ratings, like, you know, I'm at a six today. Shoot, I was at a six last week. 
Ooh, I was at a four most of 2021. Ooh, you know, that's when we know like, okay, I got to shift something. And the shift is already has two parts. It's taking stuff off of the plate. You know, the things that are overwhelming us, the things that we don't like to do if possible. Um, and then it's also adding good stuff. So, you know, reaching out to friends, if not once a week, then at least once a month and making a commitment to doing more of the things that give us joy. Mm-hmm. More things that give us joy. Um, that is one of my big words for this year is joy, just just to play, adventure, to explore, because it's something that I put off for so long in, in the pursuit of all of the things. And as, as a Black woman in my industry, in the world, you know, there are a lot of myths that I have dealt with that I've sort of put on my shoulders that other people have put on me that I'm sure you have that we just know. We, we know these, these tropes. We've lived them. Um, we've been inaccurately labeled as them. I'd love if you could unpack a few of these, um, negative sort of, st- maybe I, I, re- I retract that. Not necessarily negative all the time, but can certainly start to feel negative if it's a label that we don't want. I am a strong Black woman. Sometimes I'm also a really vulnerable and delicate and fragile Black woman. I I am all of those things and a Black woman. So I don't necessarily refute the label, um, but any good thing can become a bad thing when it's too much of a thing. So um, if we could just break down a few of these and what they mean to you, how you've seen them manifest in good ways and or bad ways um, and and how we should how we should navigate these labels in our in our world. First up, we have the strong black woman, the the ultimate helper, power through the pain, quote unquote, still I rise, one of my favorite poems. Um, but talk to me a little bit about who the strong black woman is and our relationship as black women to this label. Well, you know, I appreciate what I hear you saying that is like, yes, there is there is the positive side and then there's kind of the underbelly. Right. So the positive side of the strong black woman is someone who knows she has it in her to be able to navigate whatever comes her way. You know, like the school calls, uh, the car breaks down, uh, you didn't get the promotion, you know, whatever it is like, OK, they kind of knocked me down just a little bit, but I'm just going to get back up, you know, and I got this. And interestingly, you know, when we think about stress, like stressful things happen all the time. When stress gets to be bad is when we say to ourselves, I can't handle this. I don't have the wherewithal to deal with this. That's when we start to get into trouble. So being strong is like, you know, it starts with the mind. Like (laughs) we can't do anything without our minds. And so if in our mind we're like, yeah, I can't do this. You know, I don't have what it takes. Like then we're not going to get anything done. But if we start with, I got this, great. The problem is we don't realize when we don't got this, Um, you know, and like you said, we do just power and press through no matter what on that broken ankle. I literally had a fracture in my ankle um, a few years ago. I I actually tried to get help and they said, oh, no, you know, it's just it's just sprained a little bit Um, and it was fractured. Uh, but I was going out the country and I said, OK, well, we're just going to make this <laughs> going to make this work. Oh, so that's where that um, was the analogy. I always mix this up from earlier. <laughs> from You were literally out here running on this broken foot, fractured foot, fractured foot. Dr. Reed, I tried I, <laughs> I tried to get help. I really I really did. Um, and when they said I had to wear the boot, I, I wore the boot diligently. I wasn't happy about the boot, but I did wear it. 
Um, and yeah, so, you know, even though we're mental health professionals, we're still out here struggling just like everyone else and trying to figure out what the balance is. And that's the word. You know, when we think about, you know, our emotional well-being as kind of a seesaw. You know, we want to make sure that it's at least level um, or that the good stuff is higher than the not so good stuff. And when the overwhelming stuff starts to uh, supersede the good stuff, then, you know, we've, we've got some issues and we have to be able to be honest with ourselves. But I think one of the reasons we aren't um, is because of fear. You know, what we tell ourselves will happen if you stop and wait and listen quietly. And that's why the pandemic was so hard on so many people who are running around uh, and avoiding the things that we need to be able to address. And the pandemic said, I'm going to shut all of that down. Um, so you're not going to happy hour every day. You're not going to all these social events and, and running around and ripping to these things that you don't have to do. Um, and some folks took that opportunity to say, OK, I am going to reset. And other folks said, OK, I'm just going to be angry with everybody <laughs> until this pandemic is over. Um, and now we see, I think, some of the consequences of that where folks are, you know, we've got these surges coming back and folks are like, but I just got to live um, because everything else is so stressful. I at least have to balance it out. But we might be balancing in ways that aren't the healthiest for us. When it comes to, uh, well, hold on, I want to get through at least one more of these labels, but I, I'm very curious to know what the key to balance is. Uh, some of the things that you recommend people kind of sit with when they're on the quest for that balance. But another one of these these labels, these stereotypes, you actually mentioned this, you know, when you were growing up and that this was something that you always heard that we must be two times, three times better than, better than insert whoever else here who doesn't have to deal with uh, what we have to deal with um, as far as burden, societal pressures, stereotypes, uh, history, uh, when it comes to being high achieving, multiple degrees, financial assets, um, how has that affected us, Black women specifically, um, when it comes to us going out into the world and deciding what we want? We feel this pressure to go get certain things and plenty of it. Yeah, you know, I think on the one hand, we know that uh, Black women lead in entrepreneurial resources or, or um, efforts. And I think it's that creativity that's always there. That's like, I'm going to build something. I see a need and I'm going to address it. And I think that is absolutely just inspiring and amazing. At the same time, you know, we're overrepresented among individuals who have serious chronic illness. You know, and I talked earlier about, you know, having stroke and, and also having heart disease and also having all these kinds of issues that if we address them earlier on, we won't see the morbidity and the mortality that's related to these issues. There are problems, there are cancers for which black people are less likely to be diagnosed than other groups, but then we're more likely to die because we don't get help until it's time to go to the emergency department. And that's true, you know, for physical health and mental health, but especially with mental health, you know, folks are in crisis and then so they go to emergency, but emergency isn't really prepared to deal with mental health crisis. Um, and so, you know, then folks may have a negative experience and they say, well, I'm not going to deal with that anymore. Uh, and then these cycles can repeat themselves. And so that's why we have to be so much more mindful of, OK, where am I today? You know, where am I in the morning on Wednesday? Where am I in the afternoon on Friday? So that folks can start to track numerically where they are. 
Because otherwise, what do we do? Somebody says, well, how are you doing today? Fine. <laughs> Some people say blessed and highly favored. What is that? What does that mean? <laughs> I, I can't, can't complain. complain because it do no good. But when we're able to sit with a rating, it gives us an opportunity to do something. Um, and I'll use this example if I can, because it's it's so simple. Um, my son has has two parents who are psychologists. Bless his heart. Because of that, some of this vocabulary he already has. He's 11 now. He already has this vocabulary. A couple of years ago, you know, we were in the pandemic. I was on the sofa. I wasn't feeling well. I'm pretty sure I got some bad food. And he saw me and he said, you know, mom, are you okay? And especially for your child, you know, you don't say like, oh, you know, I need you to <laughs> intervene. You just say like, I'm okay. You know, you don't want your child to worry. But he could tell I didn't look so good. And so he said, on a zero to 10, how are you doing? He did. Okay, young king. Oh my goodness. He was nine. He's like on a zero to oh 10. Oh my goodness. So I said, huh, I'm at a five. And so I could see his little wheels turning because he was trying to figure out, okay, like, what do I do with this five? And so he says, well, mom, can I get you some water? Well, thank you very much, sweetie. Yes, I would love some water. And so my son went and got me some water because I was at a five. And of course, he went back, back and played his video games. But he understood, you know, that there was more to it. He assessed and then he knew what to do because of the rating that I gave him. It didn't have to be a perfect rating. You know, it didn't have to be something that he had to look at the scale and like, no, he's like a five. That's about midway. Okay, something needs to happen. And we can do that for ourselves and we can do that for the people around us. So that when someone says they're fine, even if we get the sense that like, well, something's not quite right. You get a value that tells you so much more. And I see it all the times where it really does work. Wow. Wow. That, that's a really good rating system. That's something that I need to probably think about more. Uh, so it's a good reminder just to self-check in a few seconds. Where am I right now on the scale? Because so often we just go, go, go. We don't give our, ourselves time to even pause and think about it. I'm sometimes probably afraid of where my number would land if I took the 10 seconds to think about it. But we need to. And I love that little man helped you think about it. That is adorable. Oh, my gosh. I can't wait to hear what he's like at 15, 16, 18, if that's what he was doing at nine. Wow. Very impressive. Yeah, we'll see. I mean, honestly, I almost forgot that I wasn't feeling so good. It's like, did he just ask me for Yeah, it was, I love it. I love, I, he's, he's the sweetest. You know, the world that he is growing up in and will eventually go out into is a digital world. And it's sometimes feels like a catch 22, uh, two sides to this very specific and unique coin. Um, on one hand, it can be very detrimental to our mental health, you know, bullying, self-esteem, comparing ourselves to others. And then on the other hand, it's also shifting public conversation. It's lifting the veil on these things that we haven't traditionally talked about. It went from being a dirty little secret to something that we can unapologetically speak on, you know, with the Olympics having recently happened, we had Simone Biles. Naomi Osaka talking about their mental health and doing it unapologetically. Uh, Summer Walker talking about her social anxiety. These are things that we get to hear and experience um, and things that resonate with us because of the same digital beast that sometimes is making us lose our minds. So what are your thoughts on social media and how it impacts mental health? You know, everything with moderation. And that includes social media, because, yes, there is good and there is there is ugly. But the opportunities that it has created in so many dimensions, as you said, like access to 
you know, respectable public figures who are comfortable talking about their well-being and how they've normalized that for so many others of their generation and also those before them and those who are younger. Like that's important. At the same time, we have to monitor how much we intake social media, the comparisons, because the comparisons are the almost the death of well-being. Because rather than tapping into our purpose, we're trying to figure out how to approximate what this other person is doing on, on IG. And so it's okay sometimes to get to in, get inspiration, but that inspiration is to be, wow, look at how that person achieved this tremendous goal by being who they are. Let me figure out how I can maximize and tap into the brilliance and power of who I am. Because unfortunately, what we end up doing is saying, well, if I can't do that, then I'm nothing or I'm, I'm worthless. Well, no, this goes back to we each were put here for a purpose. And if we need to, you know, go about our daily lives and maybe just make a note of what went well today, what didn't go so well today, how would I want things to be different in my life based on what happened today, then that can get us closer to where it is that we want to be. Social media isn't going to get us there. Don't get me wrong. Sometimes I, you know, log in just to see what funny thing happened, you know, today and also to be able to connect with the community because the community is having important conversations. At the same time, it can become a tremendous distraction. And some of us need to be able to say, OK, I'm going to put this app on my phone. If it's important to me not to spend more than 45 minutes total per day on social media and I need help with that put the app on the phone and lock it down. But I understand it can be hard to do that. We could take baby steps. If someone's at three hours, then maybe say, okay, I'm only going to do two hours on Monday, Wednesday, Friday. You know, everyone can take baby steps to where it is they're trying to get. One step at a time. Because I will admit, I have set the timers and they're like, it's been 45 minutes. And I'm like, back off. Nobody asked you. <laughs> I definitely asked you, but I'm still going to doom scroll. So it is something you have to be conscious of and it takes time. So, so slow baby steps, be graceful or be gracious with yourself. You have a take on the word should, the idea of should, and how it relates to problem solving. What is that? Can you break it down? Yes. And I paused because you, you shoulded earlier and I thought, ooh, 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 tell me, wait, call me out. Call me out, Dr. Rita. When did I should? I can't remember. It was about, I don't know, maybe 15 or so minutes ago. And it's like, I hear the word. And I'm just like, ooh. I know what we intend. Like should is presumably a motivator, right? Like I should exercise more or I should get more sleep. I should call and check on my friend. And it's supposed to be a motivator, but what it does is to actually just make us feel bad. One, because we were shooting on something that we didn't do, obviously. And then it immobilizes us rather than give us an opportunity to figure out what needs to happen. And so, and my students, you know, they all know, like, just don't, don't use this word should around her. Just don't do it. Like she's cringing on the inside. <laughs> if we instead say it would be helpful and I'll, you know, I'll use the example of, um, of social media. You know, it would be helpful if I spent less time on social media. Okay. It would be helpful, but I'm not doing that. Hmm. What's keeping me from spending less time? What am I getting from social media? Is there another place that I can get what I'm getting from social media? 
Is it because I lose track of time? Then yes, put the app on the phone. And even if you push back, you might say, why am I pushing back on the app? Am I avoiding something else? Is this really that good? You know, because after a while, you know, it's not but so much you can get, right? Like oh my God, probably absolutely. the first 20 minutes you've gotten something and by right. minute number 79, you're not getting anything else. <laughs> you know, like what is really going on? And so we can replace should with anything, with anything. And I'll give you an example because Charlemagne tried to trick me um, some weeks ago. Uh, with anything. Uh-oh. It's so funny you brought him up because I was just thinking about him in this exact moment. <laughs> he said, <laughs> how, did he, how did he try to set you up, Charlemagne? Can you not? He did. He said, well, you shouldn't smoke crack, right? I can hear him asking the question. Okay. And what, what was your response? I was, I was stumped for about one eighth of a second. And I said, it would be helpful if a person didn't smoke crack. But what's making them smoke crack? Like what is going on in their environment? We assume they have a physical addiction. Yes. And so we have to help with the physical addiction. You know, what's keeping them from getting the help from the addiction? Is it resources? You know, start to problem solve that. What was it that prompted them to start using the crack in the first place? Because we have to be able to address the underlying issues. You know, we have to be able to problem solve. So saying, you know, why well, shouldn't use substances or I shouldn't drink, you know, four glasses of wine every night. Well, or four bottles, you know, <laughs> that four bottles. You know, like what is the underlying issues? Because just saying, well, I should or I should not, it just makes us feel bad because we're going to keep doing it anyway. Instead, let's try and figure out what the hindrances are to being able to address whatever the issue is. If you're looking for the most epic place on earth, let's start at the base of a massive waterfall. Then trek through the thick jungle. Then climb to the peak of a snowy mountaintop. Then once you get there, keep going. Because with intelligent 4x4 and 7 drive modes and a Nissan Pathfinder, the search is the real adventure. Available feature. Intelligent 4x4 cannot prevent collisions or provide enhanced traction in all conditions. Always monitor traffic and weather conditions. State Farm Insurance gets it. Representation alone doesn't equate to authenticity. State Farm understands and wants to help protect our communities by investing in our future, building off the hard work our parents have done before us. We all are looking to create generational wealth so that our families and generations behind us have a better starting point than we did. That begins with financial literacy. State Farm helps fund programs like Project Ready, a National Urban League program committed to the educational achievement of black and brown youth. To date, participants have been awarded over $11 million in scholarships offers as a direct result of contributions from State Farm. At Eating Walbrook, we hear inspiring rags to riches stories on each episode from our guests, but with State Farm, you can begin to write your own success story. State Farm believes that being better neighbors creates better communities and have a long-lasting impact. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Okay, just a heads up in this next segment, I want to share a content warning as we will be discussing suicide. So if you find this topic triggering, please check the episode description, the show notes for the specific time codes, and you can skip past this segment. Dr. Rita, we talked about this briefly just before, you know, we started the conversation recording, and it is suicide is becoming such a, a topic of conversation. We are losing so many beautiful souls and 
people are so surprised sometimes by the folks that we're losing. And, you know, to touch back on the, the idea of high functioning depression and us not sometimes realizing what this depression or anxiety looks like, what it presents as, um, I think sometimes feeds the surprise. You know, Chesley Christ was a former Miss USA, beautiful woman inside and out, one of my fellow entertainment news reporters. And she committed suicide um, not too long ago. The Walking Dead actor Moses Mosley died from a gunshot wound to the head. Um, a, a black cheerleader, 19 years old. This was just a few, this was very recently. Arlana Miller, um, she left a painfully raw, seemingly clear-headed suicide note where she, she laid it out so plainly. That's what broke my heart the most is that she had thought about this um, considerably um, and often. Where where are we as a community, particularly um, black, the black community at the intersection of mental health when it comes to suicide from your observation and experience? Well, there are so many different ways to think about this. And I think first and foremost, it's important for the audience to know that I think of suicide and those of us who, who operate in this space, we think of it as preventable. And that's why we have to have these conversations so that we can be aware that the, the inner workings of a person is oftentimes not something that you're going to see on the outside. We have learned and perfected masking. We have perfected showing up no matter what is happening on the inside. And so even if someone is in overwhelming pain, if they don't want to share that with you, they will not. And that's why we have to check on people before they get to a place of crisis. And I say this to my doc students all the time. If your patients or if your clients get to a place where they are ready to die, there is nothing that you can do. And it is, it is jarring for them. But I need them to know that if they haven't done the work on the front end to put in place strategies and things that that client can do to get through that moment of crisis, then it's not going to work out in the end as far as saving their, their lives. But there are things that we can do much farther upstream so that those folks know that they're not alone, that there is someone there with them, that they don't have to you know, suffer in silence. But we have to start laying this groundwork pretty early on um, in life, you know, when they're starting to struggle so they don't, in fact, you know, rely on the mask because the mask can be the default. You know, it really is the default. As long as I look good on the, on the outside, then I'm OK. Um, as long as I'm not, you know, in a mental breakdown, I'm OK. And that's why we have to start to shift these conversations. Right, right. Time magazine reports that among black youth and young adults in particular, suicide rates have climbed steadily over the past two decades. You know, I mentioned Chesley earlier, um, obviously the, the young woman, the black cheerleader who also took her life very recently and actually quoted the, the quote that Chesley shared in her final Instagram post, may this day bring you rest and peace. And those two words, rest and peace, it just... God, it, it gives me chills to think about because I think so many of us can relate to the lack of that, to the desperate need for that. And I would so appreciate if you can speak to, for Black women specifically, there seems to be a gap or a misconception around what 
someone who commits suicide looks like. And we don't tend to, to fit that bill. Why do you think there is such a misconception around or gap uh, between um, who commits suicide and really this black women specifically to this conversation, but just big picture who commits suicide and who doesn't commit suicide? Um, because I think that will help inform why we're so surprised when someone that would I would never think that type of person would do that. Does it? What are what where is the disconnect as a whole with our with our society? It's interesting. There was a study uh, some years ago in which black pastors were were interviewed. And the thinking back then was that, you know, because black people are so religious, that black pastors, you know, being leaders in the community, that they are the individuals who kind of have their finger on the pulse of what's happening. And so what they said was the conclusion of this study was that, well, suicide is a white thing, you know, first and foremost. That's not something that a community of people who have fought so hard to live would then do, you know, to take one's own life. So I think that's part of the narrative that still exists in our community. And so, you know, the pastors were, you know, able to communicate that this just isn't who we are. And I really do think that that reflected and continues to reflect what we have in our community. Interestingly, when we look at certain age groups of black women, what we have seen is that the suicide attempt rate, so those who have an attempt, but it's not a fatal attempt, uh, that the rates for those individuals from age 18 to 25, or at least those are the statistics that came out a couple of years ago, that they were comparable to white women age 18 to 25. But what happens is, you know, when someone has an attempt and they survive it, uh, we don't necessarily know the family, you know, is secretive. And so we don't understand that the person really was in a serious crisis. Um, but now, because the crises are getting to be so overwhelming, um, individuals are using more lethal means uh, because of the COVID pandemic. I don't know if a lot of people know that the preliminary data suggests that more black people are dying by suicide. You know, since in the in the midst of COVID, white people are dying less. Um, so there is something that's happening or has shifted differently in the community. And so, you know, yes, if we're, we're looking for people to be a certain way, and maybe these are individuals who have been uh, propped up to some degree by over-engaging in activities and staying busy, and then maybe that prop or those props have been taken away that, you know, when those individuals are alone in their quiet space and they're struggling, you know, with the thoughts and they're struggling with the pain and they're struggling with feeling like they're a burden to other people, then we're not able to get to them in time. And that's why folks have been saying it. We have to figure out how to institute this. Check on your strong friends. You know, those are the ones who look like they have it all together. Everything's going fine. Uh, you know, they have so much success. They have so much to live for, but it's because we're not privy to the internal dialogue that they have going on. You know, check on your strong friends. It's, we hear it, we say it, it's so true. And it's so important because so often those strong friends are struggling with some of the stereotypes or the labels, right. That we talked about earlier, the pressure to live up to that label of strong black woman, of superwoman, of, you know, whatever, whatever it happens to be. And maybe don't even know how to ask for the help that they have never considered. Someone might be willing to give or ready to give if it was just articulated. Um, 
You mentioned loved ones, family and friends, not necessarily knowing. I missed the signs. I had no idea. You know, sometimes I'll, I'll sit down with people. I do a lot of true crime reporting and I'm, I'm speaking with the mothers, the fathers, the sisters and brothers of missing people, some of whom the authorities suspect have committed suicide. And so I'm in the room with these people while they're sobbing and saying they wouldn't do it. It's not suicide. And my heart breaks and you, who knows, right? Who knows if it was suicide? Who knows if, if um, it was something else, if, if it was homicide? Um, but at the end of the day, there is just, there's such a strong rebuke of anyone we know, any know, anyone we love doing something like that. How do you feel about that? I, I think, and this is just me personally speaking, the idea that, I would say my my mother, my father, my loved one would never do that. In recent years, I've st- I, I won't say that anymore because the truth is I, I'm realizing through my own personal experiences, through the news, through headlines, we never know. You just never know. What are your thoughts on that? They would never do that line. You know, the thing about people who die by suicide and we have these narratives um of the they're being cowards or or something like that unfortunately and people who die by suicide don't necessarily want to die we have to think of them as wanting to get away from overwhelming pain that they have something that they have been struggling with and maybe they have been hiding it from the family and friends because they knew how the family would react. They've gotten the messaging somehow. They feel like, you know, everyone else in the family is doing great and I'm the, I'm the weakest link. And so I can't, you know, reach out and they have to get out from under that pain. And I think we saw that uh, in the letter from, you know, the cheerleader in, in Louisiana, you know, just talking about like, I can't do this anymore. Um, and it seems like in a lot of ways, she felt like she was doing it on her own. Um, and so again, we don't know someone's inner turmoil and that's what it is. It's, it's this, it's this turmoil. They want to be here. They want to be present. They don't want to create conflict or pain for their loved ones, but they just don't see any other way. Um, and that that's in that when we can think more so about this being the narrative, and I've talked to people about this, you know, over the years, like, wow, I never thought of it that way. And maybe if we do more of that, then we'll extend ourselves more. And I understand everyone is tired. <laughs> everyone is overwhelmed about something, you know, pick a day of the week. Everyone is, is overwhelmed about a thing. But when we have those moments where maybe we're not so overwhelmed, it can actually give us a little bit of a boost to reach out to someone else. You know, and it doesn't have to be, you know, an hour long conversation. Just send a text, say, hey, just wanted you to know you were on my mind. I was thinking about you. Um, the other thing there, there's, you know, there's so much about this. I don't, I don't, I know that we don't realize in our society that as a whole, more people die by suicide than by homicide. And that's because of how it's addressed in the media. We think, you know, homicide is happening everywhere all the time. Suicide is happening more often than is homicide. So just, you know, I I haven't looked at the numbers recently, but we'll say, if there's 35 or 40,000 uh, homicide deaths per year, it's more like 50 or 55,000 suicide deaths per year. 
we just don't talk about it as much. Now, in the Black community, there are more homicides than there are suicides, but I'm suspicious about some of those numbers, um, to be sure. But, and we also have to talk about, we can, we can talk about suicide as a, um, something that has happened more so than something that has been committed. Because yes, suicide actually used to be a criminal behavior. And so we talk about committing suicide because we historically thought of it as a crime. And so we're now shifting away from there is something going on for this individual that suicide happened. They died, that that was the cause of death, but not necessarily that they committed um, an act. And so I think as we continue to shift these conversations and shift these narratives, we will see more people coming forward. But we can't expect for someone who's in pain to be able to reach out for help. And that's why those of us in the community have to check on our strong friends and everybody else when we can. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. For, for someone who may be listening today, you know, we have, um, things to think about when it comes to checking on our strong friends, when it comes to reaching out. Um, what if we are the person who's hearing this, who's listening right now and thinking, I've been dealing with passive suicidal ideation. I've been, I don't know. I'm just feeling a little bit depressed. It's not, it's not feeling like a, a, a normal bout of sadness. Um, or my thoughts are getting dark. What would you say directly to the person who's listening right now who might be struggling and may feel like they have nowhere to turn or they've not quite broken those, those, um, chains or the, or let go of the burden of, asking for help, or maybe they don't have the family, the friends or the support system, realistically, who would show up for them? What would you say to someone struggling right now? That's a that's a good question. And one of the things that we talk to people who are in potential crisis, you know, like things just aren't quite going right or going their way, that they do want to put a plan in place for themselves when the thoughts get extra dark. Um, because what happens is that when those thoughts get dark, it can be hard to problem solve your way out of that. You know, people who are in crisis, you know, do have diminished problem solving capacity. And so what that ends up looking like could be a suicide attempt because they don't know there's another way. And the crisis is oftentimes, you know, temporary. You know, we say like, you know, it'll be better tomorrow. Like it really will be better tomorrow, but you got to get to tomorrow. And so for some folks, it really is doing some mindfulness activity, you know, mindfulness with the five senses and, you know, what are five things that I see and what are four things that I hear and three things. And there's all kinds of YouTube videos. So creating a, a plan for yourself for the dark times. For some people, it really is a specific song um, or a playlist of songs. Some people need a three minute playlist. Some people could use a 30 minute playlist, like create music because music is powerful. That gets us out of the rut that we're in. Sometimes, you know, people just need a change of, of space or location. So, shoot, if you're in the bedroom, uh, go out on the balcony if there's a balcony or go outside. You can't do that if it's a thousand degrees like it is in Houston sometimes. But what can you do to shift your space? Um, maybe you just need to go sit in the car and run the air conditioning for a few minutes. But put the plan in place so that when those dark times happen, it doesn't become a moment of extra crisis. Um, so those are some of the things that, you know, that we talk to, you know, our clients and our patients about. And there are folks who do have a network. You know, maybe they can say, OK, who, here are the people that I will call when I'm thinking about suicide. Like, who are those people? Who are the people that I can call who aren't going to do well with me saying I have a mental health crisis, but they're good for a joke? Or maybe me his, listening to their problems will distract me from what's going on 
with me. Now, it can't be someone who drags us down. You know, we know who those folks are. When you talk to them, they got a sad word. You know, it can't be that individual. Um, you know, maybe it is a podcast, you know, you know, Zuri is having a good time all the time, you know, on her <laughs> podcast, you know, go listen to Zuri uh, you know, for just a few, a few minutes. Um, you know, but, but putting a plan in place that has at least four things on it that say, these are things that I'm going to try in these, in these desperate, in these desperate moments. Okay. Okay. For someone who may be on the receiving line of someone opening up, thank God, and saying, I'm in pain, I'm having dark thoughts, I'm considering suicide potentially. Um, can you break down just really briefly the ABCs that you mentioned in your book, how we show up for those in emotional pain? Yeah. You know, people who are, you know, in pain and feeling hopeless, they don't feel like anyone is really hearing them. You know, and, and we want to be helpful, right? So someone's struggling and we say, oh, you're going to be fine or, oh, you'll get through this. Mm, that's not as helpful as, well, tell me more about what's going on. You know, I am here with you. And so I use the ABCs. It's in the first chapter of the book to, to break this down for individuals that with the A, assume that you being present is being helpful. There are a lot of people who may not want to hear about suicide crisis because they think they don't know what to do. You don't have to do anything, but just, you know, be aware that your presence means more than anything. And the B is, in fact, to be present. So, you know, if someone comes to you and they're in crisis, you know, if you're in a car driving, say, you know what, let me let me pull over um, so I can listen to what you're saying. Or, OK, I've, I've got a few minutes, um, but I need to wrap up this one thing. Just give me 30 seconds. You know, I'll call you back and be there with them. And the C is cancel the judgment. The judgment may not be intentional, but when it's, you know, oh, it's, that's, that's not that bad. <laughs> you know, like what you're going through, isn't that serious. Let me tell you about what I'm going through. Oh my goodness. That's not doing what we intend. We have to be able to listen non-judgmentally, to hear the person out, you know, to hear their story, because what that communicates to them is that they matter. And more important than anything that we got going on, we are going to be present for them because they are most important in that moment in time. Mm, okay. You have this idea of psychological fortitude that I want to wrap up with, but just really quickly, are there certain resources or tools that you would recommend people check out if they're interested in learning more about mental health crisis intervention services, suicide prevention? Well, you know, I, I wrote the book primarily because of how we need to shift these conversations. And psychological fortitude is narrated throughout the book because when we think about mental health, somehow that that language has gotten hijacked and we think it means being crazy. Uh, but what it really means is that we are existing in a crazy world um, and we have to figure out ways to to navigate that. And so, you know, there are all sorts of resources. You know, we think about therapy for for black girls and for individuals who are trying to find a place to make sense of who they are. Um, you know, with mental health professionals who can kind of, you know, relate. We don't assume that just because someone is black that they understand everything about the individual, uh, but they would presumably be trained to be able to ask the questions that have the most impact on making shift or changes in that individual's in that individual's life. And I haven't said this yet, but sometimes when we just kind of sit and write down the things that are upsetting us most, you know, the people who got on our nerves the most. Uh, the circumstances that are driving us or we feel like are making us most insane, when we can sit and put those things on paper, 
rather than replaying them in our minds, what we call ruminating over these same circumstances, it can give us a different perspective. And I think that's what we need to be doing more of is, is completely shifting our perspective around some of these conversations that have been happening. They haven't been so helpful so that we can get to a place where we're creating new solutions for our communities. Mm. Well, Dr. Rita, you said you need so much more than mental health or well-being in this era of discrimination and visibility and psychological warfare. You need psychological fortitude. So I'm going to leave our audience with the tease, the tease of that, that so true and so beautifully stated sentence. So if you want to understand more about what psychological fortitude is, if you want um, the keys that Dr. Rita is offering up, her book is a great place to start. One more time, Dr. Rita, uh, the title of the book and where we can find it. So the book is The Unapologetic Guide to Black Mental Health. It's everywhere that folks buy books. Folks can go to Barnes and Noble and probably pick it up off the shelf even today. But also on my website, drritawalker.com. Uh, Rita spelled a little bit differently um, because that's how we do. And Rita is R-H-E-E-D as in diamond A. Mm. All right. Dr. Rita, thank you so, so, so much for your expertise, your knowledge, your spirit, your energy is just so beautiful. It's, it's contagious. These are um, some heavy conversations and heavy topics, but the way that you express and break it all down is, is relatable and accessible. And, and that's so important these days as we try to lift that veil and, and remove that stigma. So thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. It's been great to be with you. Thank you again, Dr. Rita, for joining me on Hot Happy Mess this week. I so, 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 so appreciated her time, our conversation. And again, for all of the resources that were mentioned, you can head over to hothappymess.com. It's where we share all of the show notes. And it's also where you can submit your story as a real woman um, or as a WTF confession or hashtag ask Zuri if you want to ask me uh, some questions and I'll give some advice. I have no promises that it'll be good advice, but it'll be advice. Okay. So stay tuned for more episodes. They're coming every Wednesday. So much in store. You're going to love it. What was that? Bend on the R. I don't know. We've got a lot coming up that are going to give you the tools you need to create balance, establish boundaries, manifest happiness, find peace, and cultivate relationships with others. And most importantly, yourself. Okay, it's all coming every Wednesday. New episodes of How Happy Mess, baby. Don't forget to tell a friend, share us. Again, if you love this episode, pass it along to someone who might benefit from it. Tag us on social so we see it at Zuri Hall and at Hot Happy Mess. Hit me up, slide in the DMs. You talk, I love to talk back. And I'll talk to you next Wednesday. Bye. Tired of endless diets and weight loss struggles? It's time to say goodbye to frustration and hello to results. Introducing Smart Metabolic Burn from BrainMD, your breakthrough solution to fight stubborn body fat. Imagine burning fat, balancing glucose levels, and regulating metabolism in just 12 weeks. This unique two-in-one product combines the power of two clinically studied ingredients in one revolutionary formula. Berberine, which targets abdominal fat, and OEA, which curbs your appetite. With just two capsules a day, Smart Metabolic Burn by BrainMD can kickstart your metabolism, fight stubborn body fat, especially that pesky abdominal fat, and support your weight management journey. And right now, save over 30% on Smart Metabolic Burn at GetSmartBurn.com, the lowest price anywhere. That's GetSmartBurn.com. Don't delay. Transform your life with Smart Metabolic Burn from BrainMD. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. Our products are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease.
Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org.